This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Ontario's business community are sounding the alarm over massive job losses, potential job losses, according to them, if the province moves forward with what they consider to be an aggressive minimum wage hike. What's the government's reaction to this? Well, let's ask the minister in charge. Kevin Flynn, of course, is the Minister of Labor for the province of Ontario, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML to talk about this. Mr. Minister, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having us back again, Bill. I really appreciate it. Well, we're getting down to the short strokes, I guess, Kevin, when we talk about the legislation and the impact it's going to have. Now, I know that, that your government's gone out and consulted. You've had a number of public forums about this in the last couple of weeks. Uh, that's on the heels, of course, of the uh, report that we've heard from a group here called the Keep Ontario Working Coalition uh, that says that this is going to cause about a $23 billion hit within a couple of years for Ontario businesses. How do you respond to that? Well, I think you have to uh, to view the report for what it really is, I think, Bill. It, it's an interim report. I think uh, a lot of the report, and we consider the Chamber to uh, be our partners in this, I think what we we want to come out of this with a very strong economy, but we want to make sure that people that are putting in 35, 40 hours a week uh, earn enough money to get by, you know, to pay the bills. So the interim report that was released yesterday, we obviously uh, were, you know, extremely interested in uh, contents of it. What the report does, though, the interim report talks about the risks and it talks about the rewards and then goes on to speak only about the risks. And what I think it does, and they're saying that they're bringing out the rest of the report at the end of August, but what it does, I think, really is outline some of the things that we meet, need to be sort of cognizant of. But uh, we're still firmly in the corner of those people that it, it just becomes clearer and clearer every day that there's a group of people in Hamilton and throughout Ontario that are falling behind every day. And it's uh, some people at the top are doing very, very well. But those people in the lower income ranges just aren't sharing in the prosperity of uh, of uh, the strength of the Ontario economy right now. So we welcome the report. And uh, certainly I have read the interim report. It's fairly brief. Uh, other economists have uh, jumped into the debate and uh, jumped in with a, a fairly critical eye on the report. I'm, I'm not at that point right now. I'm leaving that to the economists to uh, to kind of argue and debate with each other. I'm really interested in the information, but there's nothing in the report to, uh, that I've seen to date in the interim report anyway that would uh, cause us to uh, think for some reason we shouldn't be in the corner of the working people, at least in uh, the province of Ontario. Your analogy, uh, Kevin, about, uh, you know, let's let's talk about the pluses and the minus in here, I think is very apt in this situation. Uh, the the biggest negative that I hear consistently uh, from the Chamber and from this, this new group, this Keep Ontario Working Coalition, uh, is simply it's too much too soon. And I don't know anybody who's arguing and saying, no, you shouldn't have uh, an increase in the minimum wage. But what they're saying is, this is going to be too dramatic, and it's going to have too much of an impact on small business on such a short period of time. Well, the, the experience really hasn't been that in the past. When you look at other economic studies, if, if that were true, Bill, obviously we'd uh, we'd, we'd be uh, we'd be looking at ways to change that. But certainly, we feel from the uh, you know from the economic advice that we're receiving from the Canadian Center for you know. Uh, for policy alternatives and for other very well-established groups, uh, economic groups uh, throughout the United States and throughout Canada, that 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 just isn't uh, the intended outcome or the potential outcome of what we're proposing. You have to think that these folks have been uh, these folks live from day to day and from month to month. You've got to keep in mind the people that this is designed to to assist. Those people are living the realities of not having enough money to get by. 
Every single day they live the reality of, you know, should I buy shoes for the kids? Should I buy food? Should I pay the rent because I don't have enough to do them all yet? I'm putting in 35 or 40 hours a week. That's just unfair. And I think we need to move as quickly as we can to a position where we're able to ensure that those people can at least earn a basic living. And I said on the previous show, Bill, we're not talking anything fancy. We're not talking about trips to Cuba every year or anything like that. We're talking about paying the basics. We're talking about paying the rent, buying food. And there was another report released today as well, and uh, just just says that uh, people, ordinary people, that used to be able to live a decent life, uh, they had jobs that were in uh, the lower end of the spectrum, but they could pay their bills. They could rent a place in Hamilton, buy food, feed the kids, maybe not have a whole lot left over at the end of the month or the week, but they could get by. And there's an increasing amount of people that are falling behind while uh, a smaller amount of people are actually uh, seeing their lot in life uh, improve. The number one criticism, and, and these are people that, you know, I, we, I think have traditionally assumed to be the voice of small business, chambers of commerce, people of that nature, uh, and uh, the Retail Council of Canada. Uh, they're simply saying, we get all that, and you know what, Mr. Minister, you're bang on. We'd love to see people with more money in their pockets, because they will spend it, and that will help the economy. Absolutely. But they're concerned about the bottom line of those small businesses and saying, if I have to pay my employees more, there's no guarantee that that's going to mean an increase in sales. And as a result, I may have to start laying people off. That's their contention anyway. Yeah, and that hasn't been. Anytime the minimum rate, um, wage has been raised, for example, in the United States, the year after has seen an increase in employment. When you look at the information coming out of Seattle, out of San Francisco, you know, the experience experience all over North America when you've seen increases to the minimum wage uh, simply has not been that. I think it's really important that uh, we keep our priorities straight in this. We do want a healthy small business economy. What I've done is I've sat down or I'm sitting down with our chambers, I'm sitting down with individual members in the Oakville area that I represent, talking about the realities of running that business and asking them, how could we help? What line in your books would be the place where perhaps the uh, uh, the government could become a partner in the transition to this. We understand it's going to be a change. We understand it's going to be a challenge. And we think uh, over the years we've built a very good track record with small business. The Ontario economy is prospering. We're leading the G7 in economic growth. Unemployment's at uh, you know at low levels that we haven't seen in decades. So we we know how to work with small business. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, and they shouldn't be for our society, I don't think, Bill. I think you should be able to, if you work hard in Ontario, you should be able to get by. I mean, if you're sitting at home not working, that's something else. But if you're somebody that, you know, that puts their shoes on and gets out the door every morning and goes and works, you know, puts in the eight or ten hours a day, you know, at the end of the day, you need to be paid enough that at least pays the basics. So I'm, I'm, I'm convinced we're on the right track here. I look forward to the... Uh, the report in its you know complete form and hopefully that part talks about some of the rewards but if you look at the report itself bill right you know they say that there's a problem here that needs to be fixed and they're saying that the vehicle we're using is actually a fairly good vehicle for doing that and i i think we're down to talking about now how do we transition to this how do we ensure that we can pay these people and yet keep our economy healthy and keep small business thriving I think we're up to the task. There's some discussions that are obviously taking place with the Minister of Small Business, the Minister of Economic Growth and Development, and the Premier herself is invested in this. What's, What's the time frame for that, Kevin? Both? 
What's the time frame? Oh, I mean, I'm looking well, at the numbers here, and your legislation. Then we're talking about Bill 148 here, of course. Uh, talks right. about you know setting it from a, a buck or 11.40 right now uh, up to 11.60, and then up to 14, and then eventually up to 15. People are looking at that number and say that that's a pretty steep curve. Now you're saying, well, wait a second, there's another end to this here, and that may be uh, programs to mitigate the impact it's having on small business. When are we going to hear those numbers? Well, it, you know, it depends what we're asked for, or it depends what the ideas are brought forward, what, what, uh, you know, what suggestions that we hear. I mean, people are talking about things like, uh, like taxation, employer health tax, all the things that a small business interacts with government with. Um, we're taking a look at everything that we could possibly do to assist small business. We do that in any event, but certainly when we know they're going through uh, you know, a challenge like this, and it is a challenge. And I think at the end of the day, I think if we're able to both get what we need out of this, if small business is able to continue to thrive the way that they have in the past in Ontario, and people have paid fairly, I, I, I think we've served both interests well, and I'm convinced we can do that. Uh, the change to 1160 was going to take place in any event. That was part of the old system, and it is a very good system. Um, the, uh, the move to $14 an hour really is a recognition that People are falling tremendously far behind. They're not just behind by a couple of cents. They're behind by a lot of money. And at the end of the day, uh, when they're, you know, they're making those decisions as to what to pay for, it, it simply puts them in an untenable position. We're, so we're convinced, I'm convinced with the discussions that I'm having with my own chamber, with the discussions I'm having with, uh, with Minister Leo, that we'll find a good way through this. Well, the conversation continues then, and uh, we'll certainly uh, look forward to more discussion about this. Kevin, thank you so much for the time. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Well, thanks for your interest in this, Bill. It is an important issue. You bet. Take care. That's uh, Kevin you. Flynn, of course, Minister of Labor for the province of Ontario, as they move forward with uh, Bill 148. Uh, but he says further discussion will be happening to talk about how businesses can be impacted and what they can do. Richard Corsill is a uh, member of the Board of Directors for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Richard, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again today. Good to chat, Bill. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this uh, report uh, that was sent out from the uh, Keep Ontario Working Coalition, of which the Ontario Chamber is a uh, contributing member to this, and the concerns. Now, you've heard what uh, what Minister Flynn has said. You know, the Premier has weighed in on this as well, Richard. Yeah. Uh, has that assuaged any of your concerns that, well, maybe there is help on the way for small business if they go ahead with this? Well, uh, I mean, the bright light is that there's at least a recognition there is going there is going to be some big issues because, the again, as we talked about before, the province hadn't really done any kind of economic impact study to determine what, in fact, the implications were. And so now um, the work that's been done by the Canadian Centre for Economic Analysis, or CANSIA, and this is an independent agency. It has nothing to do with business. It, in fact, the provincial government hires CANSIA to do work for them. They're the ones who've completed this work and now have quantified and identified what the impacts will be um, so that we have a better sense of, of what, what we can expect to happen. And so they, they have now come out and said, look, we're looking at basically 20, a three, $23 billion issue it's going to put 185,000 Ontario jobs at risk. Um, 30,000 of those jobs will be for youth under 25. And 96,000 employees at risk are expected to be women, so even more than men. And uh, we also know that uh, expected inflation will increase to around 2.2%, increasing everyday consumer goods and services. So you and I as households, are going to pay uh, uh, around $1,300 more 
um, and the Ontario government. This is the other part. I'm not. This is the part that really kind of confuses me. Is that the Ontario government doesn't even really know what the impact will be for it. We know that they're going to need to borrow 440 million dollars more to cover these increased costs for the provincial government, and then the municipal governments are going to have to deal with a 500 million dollar offsetting uh, requirement. So in Hamilton. Um, city council is going to have to look at what that increase will be. I don't know what that number is offhand. I've heard a million more than that, but you know that that goes right to uh, the taxpayer in terms of property tax because there'll be no new revenue associated with that. It means they've got to go find it. So these are the kinds of impacts that we're we're now realizing are going to be there. So this is this is a big issue. Uh, Twenty three billion, even if the government off provides offsets, they couldn't provide enough to cover that. On a philosophical level, though, Richard, uh, if if you were to take this argument in its purest level and saying, look, this is going to have an impact on small business, and I don't think anybody would dispute that, then right. then why ever that, – that, that's an argument to say, well, don't ever increase the minimum wage then because it's always going to have that impact. So let's just drop the argument right now. And that seems rather frivolous and, 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 and wrong-headed because obviously there is a concern and there has, some, has to be some consideration and I think some, some discussion about, about those that are making th- that minimum wage right now. Where's the middle ground here? Well, it's, I think it's about let's, be, let's consider this a, too much too fast. And so let's look at how we stretch this out. I mean, if you look at other jurisdictions who've done increases like this, like California, they did over a five-year period. Seattle did over a four-year period. We're talking about doing this over 15 months. So it's that shock that we're all going to feel that, that will have a huge impact. I mean, just if you're, just think about this. If you're investing in the Ontario economy, how are, you, how are you going to feel about the fact that now they're increasing your costs that significantly in a very short period of time? So let's let's talk about how we do this differently, understanding what those impacts will be, and how do we then try to minimize those impacts and minimize the shocks as we move forward. And and what is the plan for that? Is there more dialogue? I, I got about a minute left here. Uh, are you anticipating more discussion with the minister and, and and the premier's office about this to try to find some middle ground? Well, we we have been in fact chatting uh, over the last uh, several months about this issue. And we will continue to do so. What 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 we what we wanted to do was to you know look. It has to be some kind of evidence based decision making here, and it has to be evidence based um, in terms of what it is we do, so we know we are undertaking the right things. And so now that work has been done. So now we at least understand it. The, the province refused to do this, and so we've got an independent agency that that this is what the kind of work they do. And it is independent, and so now we can sit down on the table and say, "Okay, look at here where the here's what the impacts are and what the implications are." Now let's talk about um, how we do things differently. Richard Carsill, uh, board member for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Richard, thanks so much for the input on this. I appreciate the time today. You're welcome, Bill. Take care. Take care. Obviously, there's a lot more discussion to be had here, and uh, to try to make some sense out of uh, what they're purporting and what the government wants to do, and then a number of social groups, of course that have also weighed in on this, that are suggesting, look, you got to do this because people are falling behind. All of them valid arguments, but at some point you got to find uh, some, some ground that, that, well, listen, when you do compromise, obviously, what's, what's the old definition of the perfect compromises when nobody's happy? Kind of looks like that's where we're going on this, doesn't it? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday at a nomination uh, meeting uh, held uh, out in uh, the Flamborough area, 
actually, there was a dual uh, nomination meeting. Uh, Judy Partridge and Ted McBeacon were both acclaimed as uh, liberal candidates for the upcoming provincial election. Uh, Kathleen Wynne, the premier of the province of Ontario, was there. The finance minister, Charles Souza, was there. And uh, Ted McBeacon, who has been the uh, longstanding member for that area, uh, joins us here in studio to talk about that and some of the concerns that have been raised over the last little while. Uh, it's good to see you. I know you've been busy all going all over the province. Uh, thanks so much for taking the yeah, time to come in here to today. Yeah, it's great to be back, Bill. Really well, we saw each other at the football game the other night. Yeah. Uh, Ted sits about four or five rows We've, behind us. We don't brag about that these in days. Section 105. Oh, I'm still a proud Tiger Cat fan. Yeah, me too. One of these days they're going to turn it around, and hopefully you and I will be there. Next Friday night. Is it? Okay, yeah. all right. I'll hold you to that. That's not a campaign promise, though. All right, no. All right. Listen, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff that came up yesterday. Uh, the the luminaries came out. The finance minister, the the premier herself, was there yesterday, yep. and a number of other folks uh, for the nomination meetings. And and of course, with the, that kind of a cast, there a number of topics came up. I want to first of all get into the LRT issue. Uh, because, Ted, you've been riding this, this issue for a number of years right now. Yeah. You've been carrying the ball for the province. As a matter <clears> of fact, there was a time when you were carrying the ball for the city uh, to try to make sure the province was on side on this, and you were successful on that front. Uh, I'd like to think that we've moved the yardsticks on this, if I can continue with the football metaphors. But now City Council, of course, has voted uh, as recently as last week to uh, ask if the HSR can be involved in this, which is going to require... Uh, basically opening up the, uh, the the agreement that uh, the province has already given a thumbs up to right now. What are your thoughts about that and, and the process and, and what that may entail? Well, s- well, several thoughts. I, I think, first of all, um, it's unfortunate that we didn't uh, deal with this uh, before city uh, the city council gave its, uh, its uh, what, 10 to 5 thumbs up. Um, uh, you know, there would have been a, a little bit more flexibility, I suspect, in terms of the consortia. One of the things I suggested early was that the uh, uh, the HSR, which is uh, the party that's anxious to see some change, um, uh, you know, might uh, be able to participate uh, with some of the consortia bidders, and uh, that would have uh, facilitated a an easier entree for them. Um, given the situation now, um, and I spoke to the minister about this. I should just be clear, transparent. Um, he's talked about uh, the option of uh, of hiving out the operate and maintain, um, you know, so that uh, that could be done separately. There's no rush on that because the thing isn't going to happen until, you know, 2020, whatever, anyways. Um, but the, the couple difficulties with that, um, uh, first of all, it, it could, uh, with it, imply the city taking on costs that they would perhaps don't have to take on. Well, and this is the this is this is the thing that bugs me about this, and I'm, I know that's not directly within your purview because you're yep. the provincial rep now, but you used to sit on city council yep. way back in the days. As a matter of fact, you represented the Central Mountain back in those days, just like you did. And of course, when the regional yeah. council, uh, the yeah. old regional council, you as the mayor of Flamborough, you sat on regional council as well. So you know all about property taxes. Nobody has to school you on that. No, that's right. But why, in God's name, would a city council? that has an agreement with the province right now to fully fund this project, yeah. would they backtrack and say, oh, we'll take on the operating costs? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> I, I, it's don't, not. I don't get it. Unless, well, uh, I mean, listen, maybe it's the cynic in me yeah. that's suggesting maybe some of the people that supported that want this to be a poison pill so people will get turned off the project. I mean, once you open up the project, Ted, I mean, who knows what, what, what additions or amendments people want, might want to make. Well, I'm a possibility thinker, so I, I chatted with the... Uh, 
minister about it and said, well, you know, if you do that, if you open up uh, the operate and maintain, and who knows, uh, would the dynamic change if we were to discover that over 30 years it would be a four or $500 million hit to the city? I suspect it might, right? Um, anyhow, all of that aside, said, well, if you're going to open it up, um, and I don't know that. I'm just guessing because there's revenue. Yeah, we don't have that number yet. No. Anybody no. anybody who mentions the number is only speculating. Yeah, that's right. But but let's, for, for the sake of argument, speculate, you know, what that might what that might do to the dynamic. I suggested to the minister if he's going to hive it out and uh, and uh, and bid on the uh, or or move to the operate maintain that uh, um, perhaps that that should be subject to bid just like the rest of the project and the HSR and the the, the union that represents the uh, transit workers uh, and the city uh, in their uh, in the fullness of time would would bid like everybody else bids. Uh, the experience internationally with consortias around these kinds of projects, Bill, is in 95% of the cases, I'm told, I, I haven't verified it at the library or anything, but 95% of the cases, um, it, the provider and operator of the service is, is, is a union group. Might not be the HSR, might be another union group. Uh, the fact that the project itself is, is going to be publicly owned, the uh, province is going to own it and and uh, theoretically what happens, uh, operate it and maintain it. Um, but if that changes, then we need to look at the option. And, and one of the things I've suggested is the HSR and everybody else should bid on that so that the citizens that we're all supposed to be serving get the best deal. Okay, but here's here's the, the reality, and let's talk about the economic reality. Yep. And and I get where, uh, well, it was Councillor Green that brought the memo, the motion forward, rather, and I, I know where Matthew's coming from on this. And, and frankly, on a philosophical level, Ted, I don't disagree yeah, with him. Yeah, no, no. I, I think it'd be a, a very cool idea to have the HSR, uh, you know, uh, operation of this. Uh, yep. Now, the maintenance is a different issue. Let's, let's hive those two out. Uh, to have HSR personnel, you know, that are going to run the HSR, that's great. But if the if the, the speculation here is, yeah, we want our people, the HSR, to do that, but we want the province to pay their salaries, uh, that's pretty naive, and 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 that's not going to happen. I mean, let's cut to the chase. That's not going to happen. Well, I then there's the operational cost, and if they want to say, yeah, uh, we want the operational cost, but we want the province to to take the bill for us, that's not going to happen either with any government. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's a supercharged issue, and it's simple to say, um, you know, after the fact, after the horses left the barn, you know, now we should revisit it and have, uh, you know, our own local uh, local shop handle everything. Uh, may, maybe that's possible. Maybe it's a way to do that. And I'm with you, you know, philosophically, I, uh, I don't have any uh, uh, angst around that, as the premier indicated yesterday when she was in yeah. town, if we can work it out. Um, but it's the mechanics of working it out, what... Uh, what delays that may cost, what uh, what additional cost uh, the city may incur, and uh, these are these are issues that we need to think about. And and I can tell you, the minister's thinking hard on it. And and uh, let's do an apples to apples comparison here too, yep. because people look at the KW situation and the yep. Ottawa situation and say, well, you know, they did that there, but both of those cities have skin in the game. They're Absolutely. paying towards the cost of LRT. Hamilton is not. Every, That's not not yet anyway. Every time I go into Kitchener Waterloo, I have the regional chairman and yep, some Mr. of the count, councillors there just uh, just scream at me. You know, uh, you know why was Hamilton? Um, 
hived out in terms of getting a special break. And and I, I try to explain as best I can that uh, Hamilton's a unique situation. We've got our code red, 28% of our folk uh, live below the poverty line. We get into that with some of the workplace stuff as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, the feeling was uh, that uh, they needed that break. And uh, um it wasn't always the case that that was going to happen. There was going to be skin in the game. You and I have been on some shows talking about that, and and I went to bat uh, for our city and and made the case that uh, you know we 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 needed to exempt Hamilton from that cost. Okay, but here's I, I, there's other things I want to talk about, so I don't want to spend the whole segment yep. here t- going into the uh, the LRT thing. But but you, as the minister at that time, who in charge for this area were faced with a city council motion a few years ago that said, yeah, we support LRT province of Ontario, but only if it has no tax implications to the ratepayers in Hamilton. Remember that motion? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Yeah. Which, that was yeah. the essence of it. Yeah. With this motion last week, they have essentially said, no, we, we want to incur those costs. So, that, I mean, they're shooting themselves, well, I was going to say in the foot, it might be a little higher than that. I don't know what's going on here. And I don't think they're being frightened with Hamilton taxpayers because they're not talking about the implications of such a move. Well, uh, when was it never thus? I mean, you know the, uh, you know the reality is uh, situations change and uh, people change and uh, timing isn't always perfect. I think this is a good example, but uh, it is what it is, and we need to find a way through it. And that's why I'm talking to the minister and the mayor and others about it. All right, a couple of other quickies here because I know your time is limited. Uh, the code zero thing you just brought it up. It's on my list. Of, I'm just going to ask you about that anyway. Uh, the report last week, of course, that there are more code zeros so far this year than there were all of last year. Uh, code zeros are when there is one or no ambulances readily available, of course, to for to respond to a nine one one call. There's a lot of reasons. I mean, we could spend the next 20 minutes just listing some of the reasons why this is happening. I know the province has stepped up with money in the past to try to help out at the ER situation, to try to mitigate the impact there. Uh, It doesn't seem to be working, Ted. Um, You've been looking at this issue, especially here in the Hamilton area, for the last number of years right now. Uh, Just brainstorm here. What, What can the province do to try to help the city out? Well, one of the uh, presenting difficulties we have uh, historically has been the discharge time. As you know, Bill, I suspect you know at least that um, uh, the ambulance can't leave the uh, emergency uh, uh, location until uh, the until patient the, has been until discharged. Until they've offloaded that to the in, either you know discharged or then, accepted into the hospital. That's right. So it's a combination of uh, uh, we we provide I think seven million dollars uh, a, f- a few years back to hire uh, um, have the hospitals be able to hire additional discharged nurses. And uh, that, for some time, seemed to uh, get to the bottom of the riddle that was helpful. Uh, now it's backing up again. And I, I think uh, uh, part of that may call for more investment in discharge. But you've got to discharge in a, uh, in a balanced and, um, and helpful way. If you, no sense discharging if you don't have a bed available, for example. So that gets us into the alternative uh, uh, level of care beds, which about 20% in our hospitals, uh, you know, seniors uh, uh, who are waiting for the CCC Lynn to uh, to find uh, spaces where they, they can go and uh, be discharged from the hospital. There are some proposals that have been made by myself back when I was Minister of Housing being considered to uh, perhaps build a 
couple of transition facilities with a direct tie-in to the hospital, not the $112 a day bed kind of thing, but with some uh, at least peripheral connection so that if there's some sort of medical emergency, you're on site, you can respond uh, and build them as, uh, you know, 300 square foot transition facilities uh, uh, where uh, we can uh, we can accommodate people who uh, can free up a bed in a hospital while we're looking, as as we continue to do, to invest more money in community-based care so that people can get the care they need and age where they want to age and, uh, at home. And uh, we're making great investments there. You know, the uh, the talk about fewer nurses is a good example of that. Uh, fewer nurses in hospitals, but over, over 7,000 new nurses provincially uh, because they've been reapportioned to long-term care and other other for home care home care visits and that sort of thing. So, it's complex. Uh, I spoke as recently as a couple of weeks ago to the minister specifically about the Hamilton situation and laid out some uh, some options. And uh, he's promised to take a hard look at that. The question here always is money, and when it comes to health care, Ted, you've been in the political game more than most folks around here, and you know that the number one priority, anytime you ask anybody, uh, where do you want to see government spend the money, it's on health care. Education, probably a close yep. second, but it's always health care. And governments can't just keep throwing money at it. I mean, what is it, almost 50 cents out of every tax dollar that goes to the province right now? I think now, it's 54 cents now. Is yeah. it gone up to 54? Okay. We can't keep doing that. So the, 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 the question here seems to be, instead of more money, let's talk about how that money's being allocated. Maybe yeah. it's not being spent in the right places. Yeah, and are there better ways to uh, to invest in uh, meeting the health care needs of folk? Uh, we have some pilot uh, projects uh, uh, which do some uh, off-site uh, health care. Uh, uh, St. Joe's is, uh, is a leader in this, um, and a- as are some of our health family health care teams, you know, where you have doctors on call, uh, the use of an urgent care center to, uh, to offset some of the pressure on emergency rooms. We need to continue to be doing uh, more of that and making uh, sure that our investments are, uh, are uh, intelligently used and... Uh, you know, things aren't perfect. Some of the accountability measures that uh, we've, uh, um, depending on your perspective, either inflicted on hospitals or, or offered to hospitals to help uh, ensure uh, better efficiency have, haven't always been met with uh, with enthusiasm. But uh, notwithstanding, they're very necessary, and we need to make sure that the dollars we send are wisely wisely spent. Since the many, many years ago, when you moved from Hamilton Mountain all the way out to Flamborough there and became the mayor out there, and of course now the, the provincial member for many years, of course, at uh, the Ontario legislature, there are those that, uh, on the topic of health care that are saying, look, at way out here, this is one of the fastest growing areas of the city of Hamilton right now, the water down area. Where's our health care? Bricks and mortar. Uh, now the Hamilton uh, Health Sciences is talking about rejigging some of their hospital locations. McMaster is, is now, of course, the Children's Hospital with some great women's work that's going on there as well. But people in that area, Ted, are saying, where are these facilities? Do you, we're being overlooked right now. You're well, the representative. How do you respond well, to that? Well, funny you mention that because my, my wife is part of a family health team she in is. Carlisle. Yes. It's one of the... When I met with uh, Dr. Lindsay George a couple of weeks ago uh, with the, uh, the FIT group, uh, uh, she lifted that, uh, that particular practice up as a model. She, uh, they have uh, patients from the whole area there. Um, uh, you know, uh, much of the hospital uh, relationship is actually to Joe Brandt. That seems to be the, the catchment pattern. And uh, 
so that's not as much pressure on uh, on Hamilton hospitals. So you don't look at city limits then? You're just looking at, at geographic? Just looking at, at, at patients first and how the, how they get the care. And, uh, you know, there's a shortage uh, of uh, family doctors uh, um, that uh, we need. And ideally, uh, Hamilton, and Hamilton's led the way in, in this regard uh, with the family health teams. Um, we need to do more of that. And again, that's uh, poor, poor Minister Hoskins. That's uh, something else I laid on his doorstep last week in terms of a couple of areas of the city, the uh, southwest mountain Ancaster area being one, uh, where it would be very useful to have another very strong um, uh, family health uh, team where the six or seven doctors taking turns on call so that, uh, that people can call uh, and get the assistance they need without having to go to the hospital. Well, lots of questions, uh, not enough answers into this, but I guess we'll be into a campaign mode pretty soon I know, with the election coming up next spring. Uh, you are officially now the uh, the candidate seeking re-election in a new riding, actually, because yep. at that end of town, of course, that's been divided into two now. Yep. About 80% of my current riding will be uh, in the new riding. The portion that's being added, which is the West Mountain, I think over to West 5th, is the area I grew up in, Bill. So in, in a sense, I'm... Uh, I'm kind of looking forward to coming home. Uh, you know, I did. I used to play ball hockey there, go to church there, youth group, uh, you know, you name it. And uh, it's changed a lot since we moved out when my wife set up her medical practice in Flamborough, but uh, it's still home. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, uh, there are unique challenges there, which I'm already trying to get on top of, Bill. Ted McBeegan, of course, uh, MPP uh, for that area and uh, also the uh, parliamentary assistant to the premier. Uh, thanks, as always. Uh, we'll talk again soon, I know, as uh, some of these issues come to the fore. Thanks for coming in today, Ted. Bill, my pleasure. All the best. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. NAFTA negotiations get underway tomorrow. They're going to be a series of dinners, So, that, but don't think that they're not going to talk business during the dinners. You bet they will. It's the first of several high-level dinners that are going to be held. Yesterday, uh, Minister uh, Christina Freeland, of course, announced that Canada wants to uh, see a couple of different changes to priorities with NAFTA. Uh, uh, this is their wish list, essentially, as they go forward with the uh, the negotiations right now. Joining us to talk about that is uh, Patrick uh, LeBlanc, who is Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. Patrick, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let me ask you about uh, the, the the reality here of, of the Canadian delegation sitting down there and saying, okay, here are our demands. Uh, is there an appetite to hear demands right now, or is this just kind of a, a feeling-out session between the two sides? Well, I think it, it, a little bit of both. Uh, certainly it will be a feeling-out session uh, where <clears throat> and, you know the, the, there will be talks uh, about scoping uh, the uh, the negotiations and then trying to really you know honestly see where uh, Canada wants to to bring NAFTA, where the U.S. wants to bring NAFTA, and and kind of without in a way the the political rhetoric that has been attached around NAFTA, especially with some of the uh, the Trump uh, declarations that uh, in a way sound like he wants to make NAFTA more protectionist and and more favorable to the U.S. than it would be for Canada and and, and Mexico. So I think uh, we'll, 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 there will be honest discussions, uh, but behind closed door, we won't really know what is, is being said. Uh, but uh, certainly I think there's goodwill on all, all sides, because if we look at the, uh, the objectives that the, the Americans uh, published uh, about a month ago, um, 
I, I expected that they, it would be a lot more protectionist in nature and wanting to, to eliminate things in, in NAFTA or add these kinds of exceptions that would allow the Americans to do what, in a way, they're doing with softwood lumber uh, and, 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 and other industries to try to you know, create more protectionism. But uh, there were some of that, but it, the, the general tone uh, was still that the Americans wanted to modernize NAFTA. And, and this is certainly the, the, what, what the, the Canadians want going into the negotiations and I think also the Mexicans. So in that sense, at least it creates common ground to, um, you know, to move forward and to build momentum until we might get to, let's say, the, the, the more touchy issues. It's interesting to note, and I'm glad you brought that up, Patrick, because the, I, I, every, I get the sense that there's still this great deal of, of fear and, and, and you know, foreboding every time we talk about NAFTA negotiations. The reality here, this is an old deal. It's an outdated deal in many ways. And and whether it's Donald Trump or anybody else that's uh, that bringing people to the table right now, it's probably time to have a, a look at this and, and and do some reshaping of this deal. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, NAFTA is is in a way 23 year old, uh, 23 years old. But in fact, it's even older than that because the negotiations uh, started way before it came into force. So, I mean, it is more than 25 years old. Uh, you know, the internet. <clears throat> most people did not know about the internet when when it was negotiated. Uh, the, the 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 you know the whole idea of uh, electronic commerce, digital trade, uh, all, all these things that now we take for granted. Uh, let alone the use of smartphones. Phones, and none of that existed. I kind of joked yesterday when the uh, Minister Freeland was here that, uh, you know, back then uh, even cell phones did not fit in someone's pocket or purse, right? Uh, they, were, they were so big, and, and, and nowadays, of course, uh, they, they, they've become so miniature. So, I mean, the whole world has changed, and, and certainly there is a need to, to, to move forward and, and, and update NAFTA and modernize it, uh, also because services have become so much more important than they were back then in terms of trade being able to be traded uh, because, again, of technology uh, over borders, um, the, the, the notion also as associated with those things and the realization that uh, nowadays a lot of the, um, the obstacles to trade uh, are not so much tariffs, uh, although these can be still quite important, but a lot of them have to do with regulation. Right, different regulations, different way of doing ways of doing things, different standards—all that represent uh, sometimes a lot of costs for for businesses because you know you do uh, a batch of of your product to, to to follow, let's say, Canadian standards, but then if American standards are different, then you have to do a different batch. You have to retool uh, and and modify your 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 machinery, and 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 ultimately these are costs. If you can do you know one one product the same way for everyone, well, that's a lot easier. Right, and then we see it when we travel, where you have to bring these adapters and plugs to make sure that uh, what, you know whatever uh, electronic outlet you bring, you can plug it in 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 in, in the socket, and 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 those are costly ultimately. So the more we can have regulation that is harmonized or at least recognized to say, well, you know, if if we think it's good enough uh, for us, why can't the Americans think it's good enough for, for them, and vice versa? Uh, so sometimes this kind of mutual recognition also. Also makes things make straight a, a lot easier, and it's ironic, as you mentioned, that uh, it's actually Trump's anti-NAFTA rhetoric that is bringing about this this renegotiation. Uh, so, so that that's kind of ironic. Whereas 
before you you know with Obama you had and, and even uh, George W. Bush you had um, presidents certainly who were more uh, in favor of, of of free trade and and you know and after renegotiation just didn't happen and now you have in a way a protectionist president and and we might end up with with a, a NAFTA 2.0 that in fact is is it makes uh, you know economic exchanges across the continent uh, a lot easier and and you know, a lot of be- businesses will benefit as a result of that. Patrick, I want you to maybe read the tea leaves for me a little bit here because you've just talked about one of the the major. Well, some people consider it a stumbling block, but it's going to be part of the discussion, of course, and that is the the protectionism and the quote unquote buy American policy. You know, uh, bring those jobs back. I mean, you've heard all the mantra that Trump was talking about over the campaign and and is still maintaining right now. There is an economic argument to be made that that this buy America or buy local sounds great. Uh, but from an economic standpoint, that usually increases the cost of projects. Uh, and, uh, you know, so in other words, you say, okay, that's great. We've brought jobs back here. But building that bridge or building that factory is going to cost 30% more because we didn't tender it out properly. We're just going to do American. I think uh, Minister Freeland actually called this, uh, what's she, political junk food. That it sounds <laughs> great in the short term, but in the long term, it's not good for you. Uh, it, 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 does that message resonate with the U.S. delegation? Well, I think it will. Certainly in, in the negotiations, the people who are, taking, who are leading the negotiations on the U.S. side of the U.S. Uh, Trade Representative's office, uh, I think they understand that very, clear, very clearly. They are trade experts, uh, and, and that's the message, certainly, that, that, that Canada is going to bring to the table. And, and you know, to reiterate what uh, Minister Freeland said yesterday, she, you know, she, she said, well, ultimately, you know, the, the, the economic fundamentals have to speak, right? This is about making uh, the North American economies more efficient more productive and, and, and leading to more growth and uh, also uh, therefore to more jobs and you're absolutely right that if, if you, when, when you have these buy America uh, provisions ultimately they increase cost it's not even clear that they create more jobs I mean I, I remember reading stories uh, back when there was the stimulus package in, in during the, 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 the global financial crisis in the US where um, you know even uh, American companies were actually losing contracts because because they imported some goods, let's say from Canada or even from other parts of the world, where uh, they, 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 because those 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 goods or those intermediate goods were just of better quality or were actually cheaper. Uh, so the, the, you know, even American companies were being blocked out because they didn't have enough, if you want, American content to provide. And 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 nowadays, you know, you, we we just can't build everything everywhere. Uh, you know, at the same time, it just doesn't make sense for everyone to be, you know, the, the whole idea of, of, of economic efficiency is specialization. And so ultimately it means that sometimes either you're going to get less quality goods uh, installed or, uh, you, you're, as you say, you're just going to have to pay more uh, or the things might take longer because all of a sudden you're going to ask a company to do something that they haven't done before. Uh, and, and, and that might create problems. So it's 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 really not clear, as you say, that that this is a, a win even in the short term for for Americans, and I think that's really the message that uh, the Canadians and the Amer- and, and the the Mexicans are going to bring to the table. Now, of course, part of the issue is 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 how to 
present that in in a political sense. Yeah, well, there's yeah, that's the rub, isn't you it? Know, the Trump and 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 his team, and also even in Congress, you have a lot of people who are not trade experts, and and even Trump, you know, he might be a business person, but you know, uh, building or managing hotels uh, and is 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 not the same as trading, and and you know, somehow I I don't know how much he understands international trade. Certainly, from uh, the things he's been saying, it seems that he doesn't understand how trade is actually conducted nowadays. Uh, but yeah, so you have to find a way that politically it can be sold uh, to the politicians themselves who ultimately have to sign off on this. And then uh, explaining to the overall population that, you know, the, it might, as you say, it might sound good in practice, in, 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 you know, in, in principle to have these Buy America clauses, but it, it doesn't make that much sense, especially when you have an integrated North American economy, when, you know, in a way we make things together. And also, if you want to have access, similar, you know, the, the reciprocity. Uh, certainly, there are a lot of American firms who want to have access to our public contracts here. I mean, you know, we are about to, we're embarking on a, on a huge infrastructure investment. It's already started, and and a lot of American companies that that you know want to get in on the action. So, of course, if if the Americans are not uh, allowing us to to get in on the action on their side, well, you know, we're 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 not going to get uh, allow them to come and 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 benefit from our investments. And you know, with the new infrastructure bank that the federal government is setting up. We're talking about billions and billions of dollars of, of infrastructure investment. We're seeing it in the greater Toronto area. We're seeing it around Montreal, everywhere. Uh, so, you know, it, it works both ways. And, and, and in that sense, these are also American jobs that ultimately are being lost. Therein lies the problem, and maybe the biggest concern that we should have here is 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 that balance, isn't it, really, when you look at this, Patrick? Uh, there are some very smart people going to be around this table on the Canadian delegation, the Mexican delegation, and the American delegation. And as you say, they're well-schooled in, in international trade and economics, and they may well, around that table, agree that, you know what, you're right, we need to allow some of that Canadian expertise across the border, and yeah, and they'll let some of ours go over there, and it'll be a win-win. But then they have to answer to their political masters in Washington and you've got Donald Trump right now, who failed with his health care initiative, uh, is not getting anything go- support from the from the Congress there when it comes to his proposed tax legislation. Things are falling apart internationally. There's pressure right now to say, I need a political win. I need to sit in the Rose Garden there and say, I got this for America. And that may cloud this whole issue, and I would think probably is going to be a huge monkey wrench into the works of these international trade experts to try to find a deal here. No, you're absolutely right. This is this is the major challenge in a way uh, to convince Trump and then also Congress because don't forget, I mean, Trump has to sign off on it, but ultimately uh, Congress is also the one that has to to to, to sign off. So I mean, there's a lot of lobbying that has to take place, and I think on that, we, I think we need to, to commend the federal government, the provincial governments, and, and and the business community here in Canada for their in a way uh, outreach exercise that the, the the effort that they've done in the last six months to go down to the U.S. all across. The U.S. at all level, from the you know the local to the, the to Washington, uh, and 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 you know reminding Americans because they need reminding. They kind of they always take us for granted, obviously, because we don't make that much noise. Uh, reminding them how important is that re- that economic relation? How important are the the investments that Canadian firms make? in the U.S. And, 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 and the jobs that they represent, 
you know, and, and often, you know, from what I've heard from people who have gone and engaged with uh, the business community down in the U.S. or uh, the you know local politicians or state level politicians or even in in Washington in Congress, you know, they, they're surprised. It's like, oh, this is that, that company is Canadian. Oh, that, that's Canadian. You know, they, they just have no idea. Well, I mean, we saw that in I'm, just full disclosure. I, I, I'm a Boston hockey fan. Uh, they play at the TD Center, and you, you talk to to people that go to the games down there. They think TD is a, an American company. Exactly. And they no, I said that's Toronto. No, it's not. No, that's an American company. No, it's not a company. <laughs> exactly. And and in a way, of course, Canadian companies play on that, right? They sell themselves when they're in the U.S. as a oh, sure. company, and that's fair. You know, the same way that. Toyota and, and, and Honda and Nissan have huge plants in the U.S., and they try to sell themselves as, you know, American companies, however strange that might sound, but, but that's true. But there, there is, this needs to be reminded that, um, you know, there are lots of jobs that are associated with foreign companies, with, uh, and, and Canadian in particular, you know, Canadian companies are huge investors in the U.S., not, not only in terms of trade. Uh, so, so that work still has to continue, and from what I, I hear, it is going to continue. And, and, and yes, you're absolutely right, Trump will, will need a win. The, the, the win that he needs is actually a new NAFTA. Uh, you know, I, I don't think for him to pull out of NAFTA with all the uncertainty that it would create, because it's not clear that constitutionally he, he can do so, uh, it would be a mess. So for him, it would be a little bit like Obamacare. It's, it's not a win to pull out of NAFTA. But if he comes, if we can, we can provide a deal that is win-win-win in a way for all three countries, where he can pinpoint where uh, Americans will benefit. So, for instance, uh, if we improve uh, access to, um, you know, public uh, procurement in Canada, especially at the provincial and municipal level, in exchange for us have, having, you know, better access and being protected against Buy America clauses, well, that he can sell as a win and saying, you know, American companies now have better access to public procurement. The Canadians are embarking on a huge infrastructure investment uh, across the country, and, and we're going to be in on the action. Uh, so that's a win. If he can sell, for instance, greater labor standards uh, that are protected in the agreement, uh, so that, in a way, uh, American uh, workers feel that they're not being undercut uh, by Mexican workers who, who might face lower labor standards. Well, that's a win that he can sell. If we can, you know, we, we're going to protect uh, supply management in dairy, but, you know, could we give in, uh, uh, increase the sort of uh, tariff-free quota that it, we've given, for instance, the Europeans and that we accepted to do in the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Well, could we put that into NAFTA? It's not a big win, but it's a small win, and then it's something that you know I, I'm sure Canadians could live with. Exactly, and especially since there are more and more Canadian companies investing in the dairy industry in Canada, in the U.S. So that might, in fact, be kind of ironic that uh, allowing more tariff-free imports of dairy products into Canada could could easily benefit Canadian companies operating in the U.S. because it might give them a little bit more flexibility in terms of how they organize their operations. Lots, lots more discussion to be had on this over the <laughs> weeks and months ahead, I guess. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. It was very insightful. Well, no problem. It was a pleasure. Take care. You Patrick Lalonde, of course, Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.